Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good to see you. Are you guys enjoying this kind of cooler weather evening? It's kind of like falls almost. Fall is my favorite season of all the seasons. I don't like that it comes after it, but I really like fall. In the evening, you get kind of like a little cool, get a jacket on. So in really enjoying this. We're... Um, we're picking back up in our Mark series. If you remember last, last week, we, we put a pause on it. We had uh, Dr. Jerry Root speaking to us about this idea of sharing your faith and, and doing that in a way that's not weird, but there's a boldness and a, and a trust that the Holy Spirit is working. And I don't know about you, but that, that like hugely encouraged me. And it kind of convicted me and encouraged at the exact same time of saying, I need to have eyes open. I, I'm so often just so focused on what I'm doing, my activity, what I'm trying to accomplish that I'm not looking at, well, who's here? You know, God knew that I was gonna go there. Who, who might he have intersect with me as I go? So I, I hope that was encouraging for you guys as well. But we're picking back up in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is a passage. Now, the author Mark, three different times, this is the third, three different times he records Jesus predicting what's called um, his, his passion experience. I hear the word passion and I think like romance. The ancient word passion means to suffer. So when it talks about the passion narrative, it's talking about Jesus' suffering narrative, him moving toward the cross and embracing his death on our behalf. And like I said, three times Mark mentions these passion uh, statements where Jesus says, hey guys, guess what? This is what's going to happen to me. And with each one, they become clearer and more detailed, and this is the most detailed one. But what's so interesting, it's sad. It's kind of funny, I guess, but each time he does this, immediately, Mark records that his, his students, at the moment he says, I'm going to have a really horrible end here. I'm going to die. And they start talking about who's most important, which one of them has the highest role, the highest seat, which one of them has the biggest job to do. Jesus says, I'm going down, I'm descending. And what are they talking about? How do I ascend? How do I go up? Do you see the contrast? Mark wants us to see there are two ways to do life. There's Jesus's way which is the cruciformed life. We'll, we'll talk about that word here just in a little bit. The cruciformed life, the, the life which willingly, voluntarily descends for those, and then those who attempt to ascend. <clears throat> so start reading with me, if you would, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And we read this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. <clears throat> and taking the, and, and uh, talking to the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, he's referencing Daniel chapter 7, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, let me just make a couple of observations here about this particular text. First thing we want to see is that Jesus predicts the details of the event that's going to happen. Now, why is this important? This is evidence that Jesus is utterly in control. Everything that's going to happen to him, it's not a messy accident. He's not falling into a trap unawares, as it were. Every single thing that has happened, even though people are freely choosing to do these things, <clears throat> Jesus is fully in control. That's why he's giving details. Here's what's going to happen. He's not a helpless victim. Jesus is intentionally walking into this. In fact, that's what we read in John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus is real clear because he doesn't want anyone to miss it. He says, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He says, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus' death, it's not going to be a messy accident. Are you with me on that? It's important for us to <clears throat> understand. Second point I want to make as we go into the, uh, his students' response is this. There's, you know, oftentimes people will ask the question, is the Bible historically reliable? You know, like, can I trust it? Is there historical reliability here? There's something that historians call, <clears throat> um, as they're looking at texts, they look at the criteria of embarrassment. The criteria of embarrassment is this. You might have a story, and if I'm in the story, and I'm one of the ones who's like relaying the information, if I look really good in the story, <laughs> as opposed to I do really embarrassing, dumb things in the story, guess which one, historians will say, is probably more historically reliable? The one where I look like a schmuck right? Because I'm going to tend to make myself look better, right? I mean, I do, I do that all the time. I do that all day long. I want people to think I'm better than I am. So if you write an account, if you're giving information and you, and you come out as sort of like not the hero, really flawed, historians go, oh, that's, the, that's one of these criterions of embarrassment. It's actually good evidence. This is historically reliable. That's what we're going to get in this particular passage. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, um, came up to him. Oh, wait, uh, sorry, lost my place here. Came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, let me, let me help you imagine. Suppose for just a second that you just came to your, your, your family or your friends and you told them that you have an incurable disease and their first response is, hey, you're not going to use that uh, checking account anymore, are you? Would you write me a check, just endorse it, leave it blank, I'll, just a blank check? That's what they do. I mean, that's what's happening right here. Jesus has just told them what's going to happen to him. And their first response is, hey, would you give me anything I want? Right? There's, there's hurt in that response. And yet, as hurtful as it is, listen to the kindness and Jesus' response, verse 36, he said to them, 
what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, the other at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. And he asked the question, are you able to drink the cup? In the ancient world, that's a picture of receiving judgment, drinking the cup of judgment of consequence. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. That's not water baptism. This is this idea of, you know, baptizo, the word means to be submerged into something, to be pressed down into it, covered with it. He's saying, are you able to be submerged into the death that I am going to be embracing or submerged in the suffering? And the response, look at verse 39. Yep. It's almost a faultless response. Yes, yes, we can do that. They don't even understand what they're saying, do they? And of course, if they really understood, I'm sure they looked back later and thought about this. This is one of these criteria of embarrassment moments. Think about what they're really asking. Do you realize that when Jesus is crucified, do you realize that it's, it's a parody of a coronation? How many of you watched the coronation of King Charles? Just a number of months back, right? He, his coronation is his enthronement, right? Receives the crown, he sits in his spot, elevated place. Do you realize the cross, in just a couple chapters, it is a parody of an enthronement. What happens to Jesus? He's clothed in purple, the royal colors. He's lifted up, right, onto a cross. What is, what is the title he's given? What's written over his head? King of the Jews, right? He's given a crown, thorns, it's a parody of this act right here. And of course, I wonder if James and John, as the years went by, thought about this. Do you remember what they asked, the request? Can one of us be at your right hand? Can one of us be at your left hand? Think about what they were asking for. Who was at Jesus' right hand and left hand? Criminals being crucified with. They don't even know what they're asking. They don't under. Stand. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, yeah, you will have a taste of it. You will drink it too. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They would suffer in some measure. James is going to be beheaded by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. His brother John, he's, he's going to be exiled to Patmos, to an island, as a result of following Jesus. These men would pay a price for following Jesus, but nothing like what Jesus... Jesus' suffering is redemptive. Ours isn't. His suffering is redemptive. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10, so this is James and John, the other 10 followers, when the 10 heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now understand, the other 10... They're not indignant because they themselves would never do this. They're indignant because they didn't think of it first. They're indignant because James and John got the jump on them. James and John, now if you remember, Jesus has different groups of followers, right? He's got like big groups, 70. And then he's got groups like the 12, the disciples. And then he's got three. You remember those three? 
Peter, James, and John, they're what's called the inner circle, his closest friends. He gives them experiences and takes them places that the 12 don't always get, that the 70 don't always get. So think about what's going on here. Peter, James, and John, the inner three, two of them, as though they're, as though they're on the uh, TV show Survivor, they make an alliance in order to kick Peter out. <laughs> Just the two of them. They make the move and they edge out Peter because they want to ascend, they want to get to the top. John Stott, uh, who passed away a few years back, famous pastor in England, he wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. In his book, he, he writes this, the world, and even in the church, he says, it's full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters, status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements, and everlastingly, dreaming of success. Self-seeking desires take different forms, but what they all have in common is that they're idols. These, these things become idolatry. Let me give you the definition um, that I like. Pastor Tim Keller, who just passed away earlier this year, he wrote a book about how, how does idolatry happen? In our, in our lives, what do you look like? And he defines idolatry as this, real simple. He says, idolatry is when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. That's what idolatry is. It's taking a good thing, a gift from God even, possibly, and make, taking that good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And we can't bear its weight and it crushes us. Tim Keller goes on to say, he says, you could have a million idols in life. Lots of different things can be our idol, Right? But Keller perceives, and he says, I would suggest to you that there are four idols beneath every idol. If there's a million idols out there, there are four idols beneath the idols. And let me give you these four, and I want to talk about them, and then give you a little test, a question test to say, might this be an idol in your life? Some of these were for James and John. The first one is power, the idol of power. The second is control. The third is comfort, and the fourth is approval. Power, control, comfort, and approval. Now, I want to walk through these things just real briefly, but before I do, your temptation is going to be thinking about someone you know who is not yourself, and try to identify their idols. Resist, okay? Resist the temptation. Here's what I want you to do. Have yourself out in front of you just for a couple minutes. It'll only be, you can get back to thinking about other people very shortly. Just for a couple minutes, only think about yourself and ask the Spirit, would you open my eyes to things maybe that I haven't seen before? Now, all four of these impact us, but my guess is that there's probably one of these that has the strongest control in my life. And one different, I don't know, maybe has the strongest potential control in your life. Let me walk through these real quickly. The first idol that Keller suggests is an idol beneath all idols is power. And this doesn't mean I'm going to control the world. It's not like pinky in the brain and I'm going to take over the world. It's not that level of power. It could be much less than that. This, if, if this is your idol, you're, you're going to sense, if you're introspective, that there is a deep need to be respected in your life. There's a driving desire to win, and nothing angers you more than being slighted in life. 
you, you long to be revered and esteemed. And, and maybe your greatest fear is humiliation. Here's, here's sort of the test question that you can ask relationally. And you probably won't know this right now even, but maybe it's something you can ponder and think about to know if this is one of those key idols in your life. Do people in your life often feel used by you? Like that they're kind of a tool, an instrument. Okay? So the first one is power. The second potential idol beneath the idols is control. If, if this is your, your possible idol here, you're going to have an obsession with certainty. When things don't go a particular way, you're going to react. Now, it might not be seen by others. It might be internally, but there's some panic there when things don't go as intended. Things, you kind of think, oh, you know, things will fall apart without me. And so you might even have a hard time handing over tasks, delegating tasks to other people because, you know, the old phrase, if you want it done right, yeah, do it yourself. But uncertainty in your life breeds anxiety. And often you envision a future that's pretty doom and gloom, pretty negative. And so you have to keep everything on the rail and keep control of it. And here's a question to ask <clears throat> relationally in your life, if this might be your idol. Do people around you often feel condemned? Maybe a little control. See, they're condemned because they're not doing it quite as well as you could. <laughs> they're not keeping things in order quite as well as you. So the first one is power. The second is control. The third is comfort. The idol of comfort. This is a desire to avoid struggle. You hate being told what to do <laughs> if this is an idol for you. <clears throat> and you oftentimes tend to just do the bare minimum looking for sort of an easy way to get things done. And if someone causes stress or challenge in your life, you'd, you'd kind of rather just cut them out altogether. <clears throat> and you get annoyed when you have to go out of your way for someone, especially someone who's not going to benefit you, who's not going to bring peace to your life. And you might feel bored often, but you don't really do anything about it. You don't ultimately care. Here's sort of a test question <clears throat> to know if this comfort one might be an idol for you. Do people in your life often feel neglected by you? The fourth one is, is approval. Power, control, comfort, and approval. If approval is your potential idol beneath all idols, <clears throat> you're going to work really hard to be liked by people in your life, and you fear deeply to be rejected in those relationships. You're kind of paranoid of what others think about you. And when you have misstepped, you replay that conversation in your head a thousand times. You fear to be abandoned, <clears throat> and you spend a lot of effort, like a ton of effort, so others will accept you. And you long, maybe more than anything else, for your peers to say, well done. <clears throat> You might even have a hard time um, speaking up to challenge other people because you want to be liked. Challengers don't always get liked. So you're kind of relationally maybe a little needy. <clears throat> Here's sort of a test question. Do people in your life often feel a little smothered by you? 
See, most people will have one of these idols, if Keller is correct, these idols beneath all idols, these four, <clears throat> will have one of these that's dominant over all the rest. And see, our hearts, our hearts begin to lustfully long for these four things because our hearts get restless when our identities aren't tethered to the person of Jesus. We're not satisfied in him. It was um, St. Augustine. He was, he was a bishop in the early church of the 5th century, uh, 4th century, 5th century uh, in North Africa. And he wrote in his book called The Confessions this famous statement where he said, God, you have made us for yourself. What he means by that is if we're engines, you're, you're the only fuel to run on. You have made us for yourself. He says, in our hearts, they're restless until they find their rest in you. And that's what he's getting at this very... And so when my heart isn't, <clears throat> doesn't find its rest in God, I lean toward one of these four idols in order to give me that significance. So when we need one of these four things kind of turned into an idol, <clears throat> we begin to search for things that might deliver one of these idols. I'll just, I'll just give you an example. You know, let's say money. <clears throat> All four of these different things use maybe tools like money, but it's for different reasons. <clears throat> if, if, if power is your idol, money just ensures that you'll get respect. Um, you'll be admired, you'll be esteemed. If, if control is your issue, money will allow you to dictate the terms of the what and the how in relationships. If comfort is your thing, Money will just enable you to avoid any inconvenience. <laughs> Never be bothered by need. If, if approval is your thing, <clears throat> the tool of money, it will help you make and keep friends. You'll never be rejected because you'll always have value because of it. See, money is just a tool. We oftentimes think of money as an idol. Yeah, maybe, but there's an idol beneath the idols. And these four, Keller is suggesting, <clears throat> are the real controlling idols in your life. In our, in our lustful need for power, control, comfort, or approval, it can leech off of anything in your life. I'll give you some examples. Relationships. You ever use any relationships in order to feed one of those four? Your education? <clears throat> your athletic accomplishments? How about the job you're pursuing or that you have? How about the car you have, the house you live in, the brand of clothes that you wear and want others to see. Does any of, any of those things feed one of those four idols beneath the idol? The vacations you go on? What about the achievement of your kids and what they're doing? Do you, uh, the more social media followers you get. The list goes on <clears throat> and on. But if you're wondering about other things that these idols, power, control, comfort, approval, leech off of, Later today, just go to Facebook, start scrolling, just start looking. <clears throat> no, I'm not saying that every celebration you share online is trying to achieve one of those, but it might be, it might be. And if you find that it is, don't beat yourself up. Just confess it to God, <clears throat> ask for him to help you. Thank him that he's helped you to see this. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm more aware, that I'm more self-aware of places of brokenness that I didn't know before. Thank you for that. You must love me a lot. <laughs> and then seek his help. Lord, I want to be filled more with your spirit and less with these things. <clears throat> see, I think James and John 
this is how they viewed life. And I think this is how I view life. And it might be how some of you view life. That when I think about life, I start at the bottom. That's got to be middle school, right? You start at the absolute bottom. And you work your way up. You get into high school and you're thinking about grades. You're thinking about the social circles you're in and what that's going to get you because you need to get to the right school or you need to get the right career from there. And hopefully you get that. Otherwise, you have to move back in your mom's basement. You're back on this rung. And, and then you want to keep, keep going. And James and John and you and I, by default, think life is about amassing. It's about ascending. It's about having more. It's about being on the top of the pile. But here's what we don't realize. We think, man, when I get to the top, Jesus and I are going to be really happy up there. Here's the problem. Jesus won't be there if you get to the top. Why is that? Because as we climb to the top, we're going to pass Jesus on the way up. Because Jesus is climbing down. Jesus is descending. Listen to verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers, that's a high role, of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They like this latter thing. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so with you. But whoever would be great, oh, I want that. That's good. I like to be great among you must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be, this is worse than a servant, they have no rights, slave of all. This next verse is the key passage in the entire book of Mark. If you have a Bible and you want to underline something, this is the summary, the most important verse in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man... Jesus' reference to himself. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, this last week I mentioned that I was, I, I was hanging out with Jerry Root all week. I was his chauffeur because he didn't drive. And so often I was, hey, hey, Jerry, thank you for being here. Thank you for that. And he, he kept saying the same thing. It got a little annoying. And he'd say, I'm just here to serve. I'm just here to serve. I'm just here to serve. I was like, would you shut up? Just say thank you or say you're welcome. You know, but he, he kept saying, and I didn't think about it. Yesterday, I'm reading this passage after I've heard Jerry say 63 times, I'm just here to serve, just here to serve. For, every, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I'm just here to serve. And I realized, oh, Jerry's just stealing that from Jesus. He doesn't have anything original. The point is this, there are two ways of doing life. I I mentioned this word earlier, cruciform. You know what that word means? Form means shape, and you can guess the first part, crucifix. Do you have a cross-shaped life? Do you have a cruciform life? That's what Jesus is suggesting. That's what Jesus is selling, a cruciform way of doing life. See, the cruciform life, it's a narrow path. Jesus said, the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, actually, very few people take it. It means crucifying some of my desires that those uh, 
idols beneath of idols leech off of. It means killing some of those. It means if I'm James and John, I'm not going to ignore Peter and my friends and try to jump over them to a better position. It means I'm going to refuse to consider myself more highly than anyone else. It means I'm not going to create a life which leaves casualties around me because I'm climbing so fast up that ladder, I'm kicking people off, and I don't care who gets hurt. I need to ascend. I need that kind of life. The cruciformed, cross-shaped life means that I begin the process of emptying myself, that I seek to surrender pieces of my lustful need for that control, that power, that comfort, that approval, and I learn new reflexes. You know what a reflex is? Reflex is something that you have usually by habituation. You just do naturally without thought, right? And you develop reflexes based on habits that you have. What if you develop new reflexes by the Holy Spirit? And so the Holy Spirit naturally gave you reflexes, not to ascend, but to voluntarily descend for the sake of others. The cruciform life, it's a life that uses the power you have, uses the position you have, uses the relationships you have, whatever it might be, not for yourself. It's not about amassing things, but you use it for others. It's about dispensing them. It's about the cruciform life. But you and I will only be able to do this, this cruciform life thing, if our identities are so tethered to the person of Jesus, enmeshed even in the person of Jesus, if we're so satisfied in him, then we're able to descend. John 13, one through three, you know this passage, it's the Passover, Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. He transforms it into the Lord's Supper. He's, he's, he's got all this stuff there. And it says this, <clears throat> I love how it picks this up. Verse three, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God, is going back to God, okay? so enmeshed in the Father, so satisfied. I know I'm loved, I'm deeply loved, unconditionally loved. Knowing that because of that, we read this, he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garment, he took a towel, and he tied it around his waist, and you remember what did he do? He washed their feet, their dirty, smelly feet. He acted and took on the role of a servant, why? Because he was so secure with the Father, he could descend, and it wasn't going to destroy him. He didn't have a reputation to uphold. He wasn't controlled by power, he wasn't controlled by any of those idols beneath the idols. Because Jesus knew in his bones that he was absolutely secure and loved by the Father. He was able to embrace the descent. Now, if I could, I don't know if I can, I probably can't turn it. Imagine for a second, the ladder is inverted. It's turned on its head. Can you see that in your mind? The ladder that I have up here, it's completely upside down. Jesus shows up with what many people thought was an upside-down kingdom. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. He said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Doesn't that sound backwards? It sounds upside-down. And I, uh, I think it was Dallas Willard who said, Jesus came bringing the upside-down kingdom. What did he mean by that? 
that to every human being who saw Jesus' kingdom, everyone said, Jesus is standing on his head. He's upside down. What they didn't realize until later was that we're all standing on our heads. We're upside down. Jesus shows up right side up, but it looks upside down. You with me? So imagine this ladder right here. This is the ascension of power. Jesus shows up with an upside down ladder. And he goes, do you want to know the real way of doing human life? Here it is, Philippians 2. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, do you see the ladder? Where's that at? That's the top left, okay? <clears throat> Jesus, though in the form of God, he didn't consider it or count it a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, step down. Taking on the form of a servant, step down. Being born in the likeness of man, step down. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, step down. There's only one more step to go. Death on a cross, that's the bottom. Because he's at the bottom of, a, of that upside down ladder, therefore God has highly exalted him. Here's the ascent, here's the theology of glory. We have the theology of the cross exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. See, the nature of sin is that it will invert you. It has inverted you because it's inverted me as well. We're all standing on our heads, defining power and leadership upside down like this. That's why Jesus seems so backwards. Jesus shows up right side up. But here's, here's the funny part. Jesus doesn't say this desire for like <clears throat> rule and authority and power. He, he says, why do you have that? <clears throat> well, you were actually made for it. But because you're living upside down, you can't use it correctly. He's not saying don't have any. This isn't the Buddhist path of <clears throat> destroy all desire, get rid of all desire, don't want to rule. No, it's very different. This is a reorienting, recalibrating of you so that you can rule, so that you can exercise power. Do you realize all throughout Scripture, we see it maybe most prolifically in the book of Revelation. Listen to the kind of language that's used about what God has in mind for you in new creation. Revelation 2, 26 to the one who conquers, tethered yourself to the person of Jesus, <clears throat> who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give what? Authority over the nations, and he will rule them. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's like 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you remember this passage where Paul's writing to the church and they're arguing and they, they even have like legal matters with each other and they can't work it out. They can't make a right judgment. So they go bring in someone who's outside of the church to come in and help make a decision. He goes, that's stupid. You guys should be able to figure this out. After all, don't you realize you're gonna have authority over angels? He's talking about new creation. And I'm saying, no, what are you talking about? I have authority over angels. 
God's plan is that his human family rules this world under his sovereignty. That was the original plan on page one and two. It just got messed up. He's going, the reason you have a desire to have authority and to rule, those are good things. They're God-implanted things. But we're upside down. One day, God will turn us right side up. And he will say, I want you to exercise those gifts of rule. And the language that's used in the book of Revelation, it's signified by this. We all have crowns. What's a crown? It's a symbol of ruling. It's a symbol of kingship under him. There's this great passage to try to explain this idea that we're not just all on our own, everyone doing what we want. The language that's used in the book of Revelation is this, Revelation 4.10. He said, I saw all these people, the ones who tethered their life to the person of Jesus. And you know what they did? They came before Jesus. Remember they do their crowns? They lay them at his feet. It's a picture of I'm ruling, but in submission to the king who has turned me right side up. That's what's offered us in the person of Jesus in the upside down kingdom. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.